Okay, today's reading is from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, and that's on page 1,128. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, it may be that for many of us, that, many of us, that part of the Bible that was read just a few minutes ago is possibly the most politically incorrect piece of writing we have ever heard. And uh, the truth is that the things that are spoken of in that passage you will hardly hear anywhere else today. The, the things that are spoken of in this passage, to be honest, are being suppressed everywhere in our culture. They're being suppressed in Parliament. You won't hear these things spoken of there. They're being suppressed in schools and in colleges and universities. You won't hear these things spoken of there. These things are being suppressed in the media. You'll search through a ton of paper printed for today, and you'll not find these things there. And these things are being suppressed in our own hearts. We don't want to hear them either. The things that we're hearing tonight from God's Word are really uncomfortable. They're politically very incorrect indeed. We don't want to hear them. They're painful to hear. But here in this church, we're committed to hearing all of God's Word even the bits that we don't like, even the unpopular parts. We don't want to 
tear out the bits of the Bible and throw away the parts we find uncomfortable. We want to hear the truth, even when it hurts. Because God is speaking to us this evening, and we need to hear what he has to say. Now, as we look out at the, uh, the world today, I think it's pretty obvious that uh, the world needs help. If you'd read any of the Sunday papers today, it's obvious the themes are the common ones. Um, you know, climate change, terrorism, poverty, AIDS and disease, the usual themes, the usual kind of terrible things that are going on in the world at the moment. But tonight's passage tells us that actually behind all these problems, there's a greater problem. And that to really understand what's going on in the world, we need to understand something else. And what we need to understand is the wrath of God. Now, the, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, probably in the mid-50s AD, and probably from Corinth uh, in Greece, to the Christians in Rome to explain the gospel message that he preaches, to unite the church around that gospel message, and to recruit their support for his mission to Spain and to Western Europe. He's been preaching in all the big capital cities around the eastern part of the Roman Empire. He wants to head west. And so he needs to explain the message of the gospel. And he needs to explain why the nations need that gospel. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you'll know that in the introduction from verses 1 to 17, he's been talking about the gospel of God. He's been telling us that the gospel of God, that is God's message to our world, is about the Son of God, that Jesus is Christ our Lord, that it is the power of God for salvation because it reveals the righteousness of God that we don't have and we need if we're going to live with God forever. So you see, the gospel of God reveals the, is about the Son of God which is the power of God for our salvation because it reveals the righteousness of God. And he's now going to explain that it's for people who are under the wrath of God. So we're beginning a new section tonight from chapter 1, verse 18, through to chapter 3, verse 20. He explains that the reason why the world needs the gospel is because we are all under the wrath of God. Now, it's interesting that um, the, this last week, some of us have been away on the, uh, the elders' uh, uh, away day focus, uh, just to kind of clarify our thoughts for the year ahead. And we were uh, reminded that the, the strapline to our network of churches, the, the commission initiative, the strapline reads, Growing Disciples for Christ in London for the world. And, uh, you know, you could ask, uh, understand we asked the question, but London's a big city. Why do you need to think about the rest of the world? Well, I know that the world comes to London, and people from London go, go, go all over the world, but why don't we just concentrate on London? Why does the rest of the world need what we believe? For that matter, why does Paris need what we believe? Paris is a beautiful city. Why do we leave Paris alone? Why does Paris need the Nelsons to go there and to tell them about the gospel? And in tonight's passage, we'll find out that the reason is because Paris like the rest of the world, is under the wrath of God. And that's why they need the gospel. But it's not just Paris and the rest of the nations. It's also true of us here this evening. 
It's as if, as if each of us is sitting in the doctor's surgery. It's not yet happened to me, but I imagine it'll be my turn soon. Uh, and the doctor will say to us something like, uh, you need to sit down because I'm afraid I've got some bad news for you. I need to tell you that you have a very serious illness, but the reason I want to tell you is that there is a cure. But you need to prepare yourself for something of a shock tonight. It's as if God is saying to each of us tonight, I need to give you some really bad news tonight. But the reason I want to tell it to you is because I love you and because I want to tell you that there is a cure. There is a cure for what you have. But you will never accept the cure unless you understand the disease. You will never accept the solution unless you understand the problem. You see? And so in God's word tonight, we're going to hear what the problem is. And unless we understand it, we'll not understand why we need Jesus. Unless we understand this sickness, we won't understand why the world needs the gospel about him. Well, let's get to the passage. There are, there are four simple things said in it. I've put them there on the back of the sheet. And the first, the first is this. It's quite a shock. God is angry. You read it there in verse 18, don't you? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So the first point is that God is angry with us. And although God generously continues to provide all that we need, so generously, I mean, we look at our lives, you just look at all the great things that God has given to us to enjoy. So many things. But I'm afraid God is not sitting on his throne in heaven chuckling with delight at what we're getting up to. Now, that is quite a shock. See, we like to think that God's sitting up there really rather proud of us all. The answer is he's not. He's actually very angry with us. See, actually, his anger is part of his goodness and his righteousness. It's not that kind of um, irrational temper that we fly into. We're not talking about a kind of, you know, violent temper here. We're talking about his caring justice. He really cares about what's going on in the world. He cares about what we do to one another and what we do to him. And he's angry with what we're doing. And the apostle says that actually you can, you can see it being revealed now. The wrath of God is being revealed all around us. Actually, you don't have to wait till we die and face him one day to know what his wrath is like. Actually, you can already see it. You can see it in the world around us. You can actually watch it happening. In fact, you can experience it in your heart. So when, I, when, when we look at what it's about, we'll find actually we already know what this wrath is like. You find, therefore, that it's a bit like um, a volcano about to erupt. You know, you see these films of volcanoes before they erupt, and, and there's kind of um, there's little spits of lava came out of the top of the mountain, and the whole place is kind of shaking. There are rumblings, and there are black clouds of smoke coming out of the top of the mountain. And, and as you kind of watch these great mountains, these great volcanoes you know, that are alive, and you think, that volcano is about to explode. You can tell from all the signs, all the spitting lava and so on. And the apostle is saying, now listen, God is really angry. And all around us and in our lives, we can see the bits of molten lava. We can, we can see all the black clouds. We can hear the rumblings. And we need to know that this is telling us that the volcano is going to erupt. 
And we'll all be engulfed in his wrath one day soon. We need to read the signs of what's happening about us and in our lives. The apostle says the reason why God is angry is that he's provoked by our suppression of the truth about him. You see, the dreadful corruptions you get to by the end of the the, the reading, in verses 28 to 32, they all begin here in verse 18. See, all those dreadful corruptions really start with our suppression of the truth about God. In other words, there's a kind of global Watergate scandal going on. We're all trying to keep God out of the picture. We're suppressing and squashing down our awareness of the living God. This is not just an intellectual game. It's not just that we don't want to discuss God. It's a personal thing. It's a relational thing. We just don't want God cramping our style. We don't want God getting in the way of what we want to get on with. Uh, Imagine for a moment a really wonderful dad. He's a missionary. And he and his wife are are bringing up um, a couple of boys somewhere, and, and they love these kids. They look after them. And uh, then eventually, of course, they send them off to unit, send them back to university, a fine university in this country, let's say, Imperial. And these two boys, they go to Imperial College, and uh, their father stumps up all the, all the funds, and he writes to them you know, every week, just encouraging letters and emails, but there's no reply. Now, what's happened is the two boys, you see, have arrived at university, and wow, London's wild, and it's fantastic. And they think, we don't want my old, the old man anymore. We don't want his kind of morally cramping approach to life. We want to kind of live a bit. And they get into the clubbing scene and then it all, you know, one thing leads to another. But basically, they want to get rid of their dad completely. They ignore the emails. They ignore the letters. And they change their surname. But did you know you can do that if you want to? They change the surname. They deny all knowledge of them. Loads of friends, loads of parties, but um, nobody ever hears them talking about their dad. And the years, year turns into two years, third year. Still no, no message from the boys in London. Dad turns up at the, uh, at the uh, massive rooms that they're staying in, in the uh, halls of residence. Knocks on the door, wild party going on inside. Door opens. Dad sees his sons in front of him. He said, boys, how are you? And they say, don't know you. Sorry, push off, will you? Slam the door shut in his face. Now, in this passage, what God is saying is that that, God is saying to each one of us, that's actually the way you treat me. You slam the door in my face all the time. And to be honest, I am fed up with it. It's not going to carry on much longer. Now, we need to face this, you see. Paul is telling us the truth here. God is actually angry with us. And it really doesn't much matter whether we like to hear it or not, or even whether we believe it or not. He is angry with the way we treat him. We suppress the truth about him. And all around the world, in every age, in every culture, people slam the door in his face, and they do it all the time, and we do it too. First point, then, God is angry. Second point, everyone is guilty, verses 19 to 21. Let's read from verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made, so that men are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Of course, we're tempted to say at this point, hang on a second, hang on a second. The Bible's being a bit tough on me here. I grew up in a completely atheistic culture. My parents didn't even believe God exists. Or I believe, grew up in a Buddhist culture. Or I grew up in a Hindu background. You know, don't tell me that, you know, that God could be angry with me. I don't even know who you're talking about. Not my fault. But the apostle says, actually, we do know who he's talking about. See, God has made himself obvious to everybody everywhere. He's made his invisible qualities, those things you can't see, his, his eternal power, his divine nature. You can't see him because he's spirit. But he's made himself obvious in the way the world is made. I mean, just look at the stars. Just look at the oceans. Look at the mountains. Look at the cities. Look at the forests. Look at how the world is changing. Look at a baby. Do you really think it happens by accident? I mean, you look at all these things. They're glorious things that God has created. And in all of them, the design of the creator is obvious. He's not talking about saving knowledge. He's not saying he's made, he made enough obvious for us to, to get saved. He's just saying, I've made it obvious that I'm here, that I exist, but you don't want to know me. And so we've rejected him. We don't want to glorify him. We don't want to praise him. We don't want to live our lives serving him. We want to sing that song, I did it my way, not his way. We don't thank him. We like to think of ourselves as self-made people. I've achieved all that I've achieved. I want to thank him for it. So we don't live for him. We don't thank him. We slam the door in his face. And so we're all guilty. This is not a personal chronology. It's not stages in our life. Paul is... He's making a diagnosis. God is giving us a diagnosis through the apostle of what the human condition is like anywhere you go in the world. You ask an Amazonian animist, you ask a Tibetan Buddhist, you ask a British atheist, in the hearts of all human beings, there is the rejection of the living God. We don't want to live for the living God who made us. And so we're all guilty. Even if we've never heard of Jesus Christ, we're guilty before God for rejecting God. And there is no excuse. I don't know whether you like the X Factor. My family are crazy about the X Factor. And um, we sort of got into it the last couple of years. It is an amazing show. I think it's got the peak viewing figures now, isn't it? X Factor, Saturday night. And um, what's the most amazing thing about the X Factor? It is not the new talent that you discover. I mean, that's pretty fantastic, isn't it, when you, when you hear the new kind of Leone or whatever it is, the new Whitney Houston. You think that's pretty fantastic. But the most entertaining thing about the X Factor is what? It's the self-delusion. It's just unbelievable. It's just breathtaking, isn't it? You know, thousands and thousands of people queuing up in Sheffield or Durham or London or wherever it is, and they all present themselves before the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the panel of experts, and they say, I am the new Whitney Houston, or I am the new Will Young. And then they start singing this. And you kind of think, how did this person possibly think that they are God's gift to the world of music? You know, and the panel is kind of trying not to laugh, and it's just so funny. And, and all these people genuinely believe that they are marvelous. 
But we ought not to be quite so critical because actually we're all capable of the same kind of self-delusion. We all think we're absolutely marvelous. Anybody who says there's anything wrong with us, we say, how dare you? How arrogant. How judgmental. Nothing wrong with me. I'm fine. I'm absolutely beautiful in every single way, inside and out. And you have to say to yourself, come on. It's not that good inside our hearts, is it? Who are we kidding? God says we're all guilty. You're guilty. I'm guilty. You see, it's not the way we were brought up. It's not, you can't point to the education and say it's the teacher's fault. You can't point at your parents and say it's the genes you've handed down. You can't point at the immigrants and say it's their fault. You can't look at, point at the government and say you should have done something about it. God is saying, look, it's not anybody else's fault. It's your fault. You and I are guilty of slamming the door in the face of God. Third point. Third thing we find, this is a real shock. Religion is stupid. And you find that in verse uh, 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and invented all kinds of religions. Now, you don't expect to hear that at church on a Sunday, do you? You know, religion is stupid. Actually, there's lots of people walking around up and down Piccadilly out there. They all think religion's stupid. And the Bible says they're absolutely right. Human religion is stupid. This is a breath of fresh air when you actually think about it, because it is. There are three cycles that are repeated here. And uh, basically, the apostle's going to show how we've exchanged the good things of God for the nonsense of religion. So you get it there in verse uh, Uh, 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like man and animals. Therefore, 24, God gave them over. Then you have the cycle again. Look at verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Verse 26, therefore, God gave them over. Verse 28, they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so he gave them over to a depraved mind. Three times. We exchange the good things of God for the nonsense of religion. And that really provokes God. Notice, therefore, in verse 22, we find that, um, verse 23, sorry, firstly, this is an absurd exchange. We prefer images to the glory of God. Now, I'm not supposed to say this, and maybe soon there'll be a law passed that says, I can't explain what this means, but I hope you can see it's pretty obvious. That actually... Human-made religions are really silly. I mean, take statues, images made to look like mortal man and animals and birds and reptiles. I mean, near where I live, just down in Wimbledon, there's a, um, a Buddhist temple. You can go into the Buddhist temple, and there's a little um, fat man painted in gold. And in front of him, you'll find there's a plate with bits of food on it. And people have left their offerings for the little Buddha. And do you know the Buddha hasn't eaten any of them? The food is rotting on the plate. Because I'm sorry to tell you the truth. I know I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just trying to tell it straight. It's just a piece of wood. Somebody chopped it out of a tree, sanded it down, and painted it gold. Then carried it into the temple and stuck it down. And now people make offerings to it. That is really silly, isn't it? Or or down the corner shop, the corner of my street, there's a a shop, a lovely guy in it from uh, Sri Lanka. But uh, on his window, there's some pictures of the family gods. One of them is an elephant with lots of arms. I'm sorry, but that, how can that picture of 
Is it Ganesh? How can that picture of Ganesh possibly influence his family life? It's a piece of cardboard that was made in a factory, probably in China. It will not affect his life. Well, take the, the, the pictures of uh, uh, the, the statues of a woman you'll find in many places in London with a blue cloak on her head. And people will light candles and put the candles in front of her in the hope the candles that will be prayers that will rise to her, her name is Mary, and that somehow she will make their lives better or that she will do something for their dearly beloved who've departed this life. I'm sorry, but how can a wooden statue change anybody's life? I know I'm supposed to be respectful, but how can a cow really be sacred? You drive down a road in India and you see a cow. It's a normal cow. It eats grass and it poos like every other cow. How is that sacred? It's not sacred. It's a cow. And yet what I'm talking about, of course, is all the grand and ancient human religions of this world. And God says to us, they're stupid. They're really stupid. I don't mean to be rude, but they are, when you think about it. Then says the apostle, verse 25, look, it's a false exchange. We prefer lies to the truth. We give our worship to created things. So whether we worship the mountain god, or, he says, recovering his notes, whether we worship the mountain god or the rain god, or the money God, or the pleasure God, or the favorite God in London at the moment, the God is in me, me God. Whatever we're doing, we're pretending. These are lies. Because, of course, what we're doing is we're reinventing God the way we prefer him. Have you noticed how the religions of the world are all shaped by the philosophy and culture of the culture behind them? And so, of course, um, what we like to do is we don't like to serve the living God. We don't want to be indebted to him and actually live for him. What we want to do is to refashion God, to reinvent him in a way that serves us. So we make a God that will be convenient to the way of life that we want to live. Whether it's the God that if I sacrifice some chickens, he'll send some rain for my crops. Or the kind of God that we believe in here in London that uh, really likes whatever we do. And as long as I'm true to myself, you know, I'll, I'll be happy. But you might then say, hang on a second, some of the religions of the world have rules to them which are quite difficult to keep. Yeah, that's true. Not so convenient at that point. At that point, of course, you need to ask yourself, well, who made up the rules? Well, the religious leaders, of course, the ones on the top of the pile. You see, they invent the rules to keep everybody below them. So they feel superior and everybody else feels despair and fear. Well, I'm sorry, but how can wearing a, a, a comb in your hair well, how can the fact that you walk from this place to that place in another country possibly secure your salvation? These are rules invented by men that they're created out of the philosophy of a culture. And they're false. Notice 30 verse 28, it's an ignorant exchange. We abandon and surrender our awareness of God so that we can do what we want. Have you noticed that people at work don't want to talk about God? They don't, do they? People don't want to talk about Jesus Christ. Why? Because we don't want God to cramp our style. We don't want God to stop us doing the things we like doing. You see, we don't want to know the living God. And so people in London, your friends, our friends, all of us too, 
have rejected the knowledge of God. We prefer human religion. So everybody, if you ask them, would say, you know, I like to think of God as the following. By which they mean my invention of God is as follows. And we have to endure their version of God that's more convenient to the way they live. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Thirdly, their religion is stupid. Fourthly, sin is punishment. Sin is punishment. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Three times we read of God giving people up to the sin that we want to practice. Now, this is quite a shock, you see. We all think that if God is going to judge our sin, how are you going to see the wrath of God? Well, we think it's going to be a lightning strike or a tsunami or something. And actually, the shock is that it's not God intervening in this world. He's already in the world. He's already involved in all our lives. It's not God intervening. It's actually God withdrawing. He removes the restraints. He gives us up to the things we're so desperate to do. He actually lets us have the sin that we so want and to wallow in the filth of it. And it brings us such misery. The damaged relationships, immorality and corruption are only fun while you're drunk. And when the hangover wears off, it's awful, isn't it? And what happens is that God withdraws. He says, you want to be free of me? You want to be sinful and evil? Here you are, taste it and see how good that really is. And that's why the world is the way it is. His sin is the judgment. And we read of it here. There's lots of um, lists in uh, verse uh, 24. There's the corruption that degrades our bodies with sordid immorality. Verse 26, there's shameful lusts, even in unnatural homosexual perversions, which is the clearest rejection of the created order. And it's interesting, of course, you know, at some point you might say, is Paul kind of obsessed with sex then? Why is he going on about sex at this point? Now, the point of, is, of course, that God invented sex. It's his beautiful gift to keep a man and a woman together in marriage. It's the glue of the relationship, modeled on God's character, his father, son, and spirit, different but united in himself. So he's created humanity, male and female, different, to be united in marriage. And sex is the glue right at the heart of that relationship. It's a beautiful gift. Paul is saying that right at the heart of our human relationships, even in sex itself, our rebellion against God, our rejection of him, has disrupted the order into all kinds of sexual immorality, heterosexual and homosexual. But it's not just sexual things. He then goes on in verse 28, and, and, it's, and it's dreadful to read, but it's true, isn't it? Just look at that list. We'll see these things in the newspapers, and we'll find them in our own hearts. Sin is the evidence, you see, that the volcano is going to explode. I mean, look at them. Uh, firstly, evil. Well, ethnic cleansing and pedophile rings, they are evil, aren't they? We want the wrath of God to consume those terrible things, don't we? What about greed? Well, we see that in Somali warlords or in the Serban longing for bigger kitchens. Where's the depravity? Well, what about human trafficking? 70% of the internet being used for hardcore porn. 
That's what you'd call depravity, isn't it? Envy, suburban housewives are soaked in it. Labor unions are driven by it. What about murder? Well, you have that in, in Darfur. You have it in abortion clinics throughout the country. Where is there strife? In Iraq and in Stamford Bridge. Where is there deceit? Well, you find it in politicians and in husbands' hearts. We find malice in the racist as much as in the animal rights activist. We find gossip in the tabloids and in the dining clubs. We find slander at the school gates and in the office lunchtime. We find God-hating in Dawkins and Brown. Insolent, arrogant, boastful. We worship them. They're called celebrities. We pay them to run around a park. We've watched them on the television this afternoon. Insolent, arrogant, boastful. We invent new ways of doing evil. Credit card fraud, tax evasion. We are hot, senseless, aren't we? We are silly. You know, we diet like crazy to get the perfect body while millions are starving for lack of bread. We are faithless in our hearts, in the adultery of our minds. If we haven't yet done it, we just dream about doing it. We are heartless towards the elderly. We are ruthless towards other people at work. And so you see, verse 32, we're in serious trouble. Although they knew, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. I don't know whether your office is like the office I used to work in. What's going to happen tomorrow in the office? Once you get in and there's time for a coffee break, somebody's going to talk about what? Well, what we got up to over the weekend. Party went to Friday night, got totally bladded, fantastic. Three o'clock, we staggered down such and such. Somebody got in a fight, he got off with her. It's amazing. Slept in on Sunday morning. Oh, he couldn't get up till 12. Went out and got bladded again last night. It was great, fantastic. And people will basically just tell the stories of the depravity we got up to over the weekend. You coming to, uh, to Mark's on Friday night? No, I can't make it. But Saturday, I'll be there. We're just boasting about all the evil that we continue to do and approve of. And so we're in serious trouble with the living God. Do you see the problem that Paul is talking about here? The problem is not our sin. We can endure that. In fact, the truth is we quite enjoy it. The problem is the wrath of God. Because even if we like our sin, God doesn't. And the day is coming when everything that is evil will be consumed by him. And the clues that that is, is going to come is in what is happening in our hearts and in the world all around us. And the solution to the problem, the solution to the problem, therefore, is not in us. It's not in moral reform. If the problem was our sin, then a little bit of improvement on our part and maybe things would get better. The problem is God. That he is full of wrath at the way we treat him and the way we treat one another. And therefore the only solution is that he is satisfied. The only way to, to be free of this problem, to be free of the coming wrath, is if God is satisfied despite what we've done. And Paul will go on in this, gospel, in this uh, book to explain that God has given us what we need in the Lord Jesus Christ. But tonight what we need to understand is that we are under the wrath of God. And until we understand that, we'll not want Christ. 
until we understand that we are under his judgment and facing his wrath, already experiencing it now, and are waiting for the volcano to explode, when we understand that that is the problem, we'll run to Christ and his death on the cross for the forgiveness we so desperately need. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord God, it's not comfortable to hear you describing our own hearts. But thank you that because you love us, you've told us the, good, the bad news so that we will want to hear the good news about Jesus. Thank you for telling us that actually you're angry with us for the way we treat you and the way we treat other people. Please forgive us, forgive us for thinking that you must be so pleased and proud with the way we all live. Thank you for reminding us that we're all guilty. Until we come to Christ, we are guilty of rejecting you. Thank you for showing us that religion is not the answer, that it leads away from you and not towards you. And thank you for reminding us that sin is the punishment, that you have taken away the restraints, and that's why our lives and the world are the way they are. Help us to see what we've done Help us to understand that we are guilty. And even tonight, may we run to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness. For we ask these things for his glory. Amen. Now looking at a passage like that and, and uh, hearing what I've been saying and explaining it to you, I guess there'll be questions and uh, all kinds of opinions. It's probably the opposite of what we'll hear tomorrow the rest of the week. So if you have any questions or comments you'd like to make, or indeed any prophetic insight into how this passage applies to us, uh, sitting here at TBT tonight, uh, you'd be very welcome to, to say or to ask what you'd like to. Anybody like to ask a question or, or to say anything? I'll just blabber on for a bit. Jason. Um, the question was, some religions in the world seem to encourage a moral behavior which looks a little similar to um, um, the Christian religion. I've used an illustration before to explain the answer to that. Now, of course, the rules themselves aren't stupid, but to do them for something that isn't God is. So it's a, it's a bit like um, uh, cooking well on a pirate ship. You see, in other words, just because you make great meals and sew up the sails well and scrub the floors well on a criminal pirate ship doesn't mean that you're not guilty. The point is you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. And so often we, we do things that in the actions themselves look good. But because we're not doing them for the living God, we're on totally the wrong side. You know, to, to put it another way, because you, you bandage the wounds of the soldiers that work for Al-Qaeda doesn't mean you're doing a great thing. You're on the wrong side. We're not doing it for the living God. So the actions themselves are good. You're absolutely right. Which is why we, you know, we do want to support medical work even when it's done by people of a different faith. But the faith for which it's done is a stupid rejection of the living God, according to, to Paul here. Is that, is that clear? 
There's another hand, yeah. Thank you for that comment. Um, the, the, the comment that's being made, and I think it's a very helpful comment, that when you're speaking to people of other faiths, then they'd be very offended if we said the kind of things that uh, I've been saying tonight. The things to say to that, yes, I, I'm not suggesting for a minute that you go out now and find somebody of another faith and tell them everything that this passage says in one go. Uh, because it, it will be so offensive that they're likely not want to hear any more. Um, but we need to get our heads clear about what actually is going on. You see, when you read about what the Apostle Paul did in his missionary work, the reason why he put himself around the Roman Empire and suffered so much for people to find the love of Christ, the reason he did that is because he understood this about the faith and religions that they were involved in. In other words, if we can get our thinking straight about what is actually happening, that will drive us to give ourselves sacrificially in love for others and to earn the right gently over time to explain the truth about what's happening to those people. The second thing to say, though, is that sometimes we're so frightened of not offending anybody that we don't say enough. And it's striking when you read about the apostle who was so effective in planting churches and speaking to people around the Roman Empire that he did say things that would have been shocking. Um, But because it's the truth, it's also liberating. So there may be people here tonight who've never heard anything like what this passage says, but they're thinking in their hearts, do you know that is absolutely true? That is right. That is what my life is like. That is what my religion is like. And and actually it's very, very exciting to hear the truth. And sometimes we think that the truth is offensive because we've been told in our political correctness. And the reason for thinking that, of course, is that everyone is everyone's version of the truth is fully acceptable, even though they contradict each other. So there's a political reason, or a philosophical reason, behind us taking that approach to other people. So on the one hand, you're right. We need to be gentle and to take our time as we explain these things. On the other hand, don't be frightened of gently and kindly and lovingly explaining the truth as the opportunity comes. Have I put that the right way? Anybody else want to contribute on that? Because I think that's a very important qualification. Yeah. Any other questions or comments you'd like to make? Yeah. Thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm, I've kind of abbreviated the point there, haven't I? Uh, um, I suppose it would be more accurate to say that sin is because of God's punishment. That is, God has removed his restraint so that we sin. So he's turned us free. We do the sinning because he has removed his restraints upon us. So his judgment is to let us wallow in the filth that we we claim to enjoy so much. And the problem, problem is it brings misery. It brings misery to all our human relationships and leaves us far from God. And so, um, yes, thank you for that. It'd be more accurate to say he removes the constraints upon us so that we sin, but then it was too long a point to put on the page, so I just put sin is the punishment. So thank you. That's, that would have been a better talk. Just, right. 
That'd be all right.